Welcome to a special edition of the Trojan Talk podcast. They're all special in their own way, and I do always say that it's a special edition of the podcast. But this is a special edition. We will, of course, give you what you're expecting, which is our game breakdown, the second segment today, breaking down USC's 37-14 win over Colorado, looking ahead to the last game before the bye week, a big one with Utah, if USC is going to have any chance in the Pac-12 South, obviously it has to keep winning, and this is a big one this week. But this is a special podcast, like I said. So we're going to start in a different direction. If you are a Trojansports.com subscriber and you're on our Trojan Talk message board, you already know what's coming. I teased it because I was so excited. We are joined at the top of the show by the esteemed sports writer for the Los Angeles Times and my great buddy, Brady McCullough. Brady, how are you? Doing great, Rhino. You call me Rhino, I'm going to call you Ace, and <laughs> I'll give the backstory. We learned that Clay Helton called everyone Big Horse, and in turn, he was called Big Horse. And it made me, it made me kind of jealous, because we have a similar go-to name that's, that's not as catchy as Big Horse. Back when we worked together at the Kansas City Star in Kansas City, Missouri... Long time ago, over a decade ago now, we had an editor who called everyone Ace. You get that call, 2 p.m. on a Monday, what are you doing, Ace? And it was it was so prevalent and just all the time that you and I started playfully using the Ace term, so much so that it got stuck where we couldn't stop using it. And now, a decade later, I still call you and say, what's up, Ace? It's all Ace all the time, buddy. But in hindsight, in hindsight, uh, Big Horse was a better choice. So I give Clay Helton credit for that. But like Mark McGuire, we're not here to talk about the past. We are here to, to talk about the future of USC football and the coaching search, which has been going on now for a few weeks. But, I mean, nothing's really happened. Nothing's probably going to happen for a couple of months. I keep trying to tell everyone when they ask me, what's the latest on the coaching search? And I say, I don't know. And nobody else knows. And if they tell you they know, then they don't know how little they actually know. And so you don't know either, but we are going to talk about it. And you do know some things because you just went to Cincinnati, Ohio to do the Luke Fickle story, the seminal, official, in-depth Luke Fickle story, as he's obviously the obvious name linked to this coaching search due to Mike Bone having hired him at Cincinnati. Brady. For those that didn't read your story, what was your takeaway coming out of that in terms of Luke Fickle as a USC coaching candidate? You know, you know, if you if you read the story, um, you know, I realize not everybody has you know twenty minutes to uh, to parse through every uh, every quote uh, from from Luke Fickle's wife and mom and mentors like Jim Trussell and. John Cooper, the old Ohio State coach, coaches, Uh, you know, my takeaway was that it was going to be very, very hard for even USC and even Mike Bone, who hired Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, to get him and his six freaking kids out of a very comfortable life in Cincinnati where he's now just absolutely killing it. Uh, he's an Ohio guy 
he spent about a year of his life outside the state of Ohio. That's when he was uh, trying to get on with the New Orleans Saints as a defensive lineman. Was on their practice squad and uh, nursing an ACL injury, and can only imagine that uh, the whole time he was in New Orleans, he was just wishing that he was in Columbus. Uh, he's just that kind of guy. You know, I, I can never understand it, but um, no, I think it's going to be a going to be a really tough, tough sell, and the. You know, the main reason is, I, you know, his wife just does not want to move. She does not want to move her six kids um, across the country, uproot her, you know, junior year in high school daughter, and have her start over as a senior. Uh, they're Ohio Midwestern people, and it was just going to be a tough cultural uh, move. And I just was like, well, I know that. And, and no one said that he won't, that he wouldn't do it or that he wouldn't take the call. Even his wife did not close the door when I basically said, you know, so what I'm hearing here is that there's this L.A. is is L.A. a no. And she wouldn't say that. She's smarter than that, you know. But, yeah, I just think Luke Fickle would have to basically blow a lifetime's worth of of husband capital um, that uh, if he even has any left based on what I heard from his wife, uh, it's been been quite 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 a go for her with six kids, uh, you know, to, to get her to, to move across the country. Well, for the listeners who may not know, and you kind of uh, alluded to it, so I think I need to give full clarity. You are not only a Michigan graduate, but among the most passionate college sports fans I know for your alma mater. So this really speaks to your level of commitment to the craft that you sacrificed going into enemy territory in the state of Ohio, talking to Jim Tressel and John Cooper, and and even Luke Fickle, a former Ohio State coach, just to bring us this great insight and story. So I think the, the listeners should at least know that much. <laughs> yeah, you know, Ohio is not the place I would have chosen for my first working uh, travel uh, story uh, since the pandemic started. Would have much rather done uh, something else. But but this was the story. This was as we discussed. Uh, this was Notre Dame week. You're not going to have a better backdrop to get a sense of who he is and, and what the situation is in Cincinnati and the, the excitement that he's brought there. Uh, you're not going to get a better backdrop than, than just dropping in Notre Dame week top 10 game. And then he goes out and he freaking wins. Yeah. Um, they beat Notre Dame. And I wrote a follow-up column Saturday night that I, I think that that win – it's just a gut feeling uh, that win to me makes it even tougher because now he, he knows he can win big games like that at Cincinnati. You know, as I put it in the column, he, he doesn't have to go to another blue blood to, to beat a blue blood. He can do it at Cincinnati and they've got a, you know, they're going to the big 12 soon, which I believe is still going to be a power five league and have that label. And, and so, yeah, I think it's just going to be even tougher for him to say with this, well, I got to go to USC. Did you go into this trip already kind of feeling that, that was the the, the stance and, and, and the sense, or was it really what you heard in these interviews and talking to his family and talking to his wife that swayed you on to thinking that, wow, this is actually a long shot for USC? Kind of, I had a sense for that just based on doing some reading and, and research before the trip. And, you know, I think when I, when I heard, you know, just how honest, uh, his wife was about how she is not going to want to move. You know, that certainly increased it, but in a way, the fact that she didn't, 
nobody that I spoke with closed the door on USC, even her. You know, I think I left there feeling like it was it was going to be really hard, and, and I do think, and I think it got even harder on Saturday. Didn't get a ton of time with Luke himself. It was a busy week, but he did give you some time. What sense did you get for him and just his personal ambition as a coach? That, that's obviously the one factor that would maybe keep this alive if, if it truly mattered to him to to get to one of those you know traditional blue blood programs. What sense do you get for what he wants out of his career? Yeah, yeah. That you know, I didn't get a ton of time with Luke himself. What I observed of him was um, you could just tell watching him just even talk about this week and the game against Notre Dame and and what goes into that, just what a competitor he is. Now every coach is out of there a competitor, but I mean this guy, and I took examples and different things of this in the story, this guy is a next-level competitor, and that is the thing that, you know, you say, well, ultimately, is he going to really pass up a top-five job, you know, and keep waiting at Cincinnati for uh, Ohio State or Notre Dame uh, to come up or – can't see him going to Michigan just because you know the hatred is probably too ingrained. But uh, Penn State, you know, if say USC got Franklin, well, Penn State opens. Yeah, so I, I, I think this guy wants to win at the highest level. But I also get a sense that I mean, he's a blue collar kind of guy. You know, I don't. One of the challenges, or not enough to challenge, one of the adjustments he'd have to make at USC in, in recruiting in Southern California is just kind of the dealing with the you're expected to get these, you know, five stars, you know, four stars. Um, you're, you're, it's a different type of kid you're recruiting than he's recruiting at Cincinnati. You know, right now he's trying to scoop up the, the kids in state that are not going to Ohio state. He's trying to keep that, that next tier kid who is not good enough for Ohio state um, from to go to Cincinnati instead of Kentucky or, Michigan State or Northwestern or, or Illinois or, or whatever, you know, he's and, he, and he's doing a great job of that. Yeah. And one of the things guys talked about was the way he recruited at um, at Ohio State was, you know, he was great at finding these tough dudes that could be developed. You know, they, that he was the one guy, I guess, who like, you know, stood on the table and said, "We got to take James Laronitis." You know, his his dad's a former wrestler. Fickle is a wrestler, you know, this guy's tough as nails. We got to, you know, he was not like a four or five star recruit. But Fickle said, we had to get this kid. Of course he comes in, he's an all American. That's the kind of kid I think Luke loves to recruit. He's looking for those tough, tough dudes who love football and are obsessed with it and can be developed and coached. So one, that would be one thing about him in USC. I think pretty easy thing to get over. I mean, who doesn't want more talent, but, but recruiting that type of kid, um, is something that he would have to adjust to. It's different. It's, it's a lot different, Jason, those five stars. It's a great point. I guess last thing on Luke Fickle, because we have other things to talk about, but let's, assuming it is at least still somewhat of a possibility, what would make him a great fit from USC's perspective? Just that, that toughness, like I said. Um, everything that he exudes is confidence and toughness and focus. He is a legit coach and motivator and uh actually people one of the things that i thought i found him very engaging i found him to be funny i went to his radio show he had the whole room laughing numerous times with just a quick quick wit 
And so people talk about, oh, well, Pickle, he's kind of this shy Midwestern guy, or, you know, how's he going to handle the big city? And I, I think that's way less of a, a factor. Uh, first of all, people don't understand. I mean, USC is, of course, it's a, it's a, you know, there's a lot more attention on it than Cincinnati, but, you know, he, he can, you know, you can be the USC coach and live your life pretty normally here in town. I mean, you know, you get your place down in the South Bay and, you know, you, you can build community and you can have, you can just be, be a guy in Los Angeles. There's many, many, many more stars than, than the USC football coach. So I think Luke would fit in fine uh, as a guy um, in, in this market and uh, be a great representative of the university. It just, you know, comes down to just, the, like I said, the number one thing is toughness. That's what he's all about. And he believes that, as I put in the story, this quote, I you know, I thought it was in, well put is, you know, toughness to him is a skill. It is something that can be taught and he believes he can teach it. And certainly that is maybe the one thing above all else that USC fans have feel has been lacking from this program for a while. And maybe one of the main reasons why they are now searching for a new coach. I encourage everyone to go read Brady's full story on Luke Vickle. He's really the best in the business at going somewhere and getting to the heart of a story. He did it with, Steve Sarkeesian a few weeks ago and just kind of detailing what this road back has been like for Sark since his downfall at USC and now having the Texas job and then uh, to go on the road to Cincinnati and, and really talk to all the key players in this and provide the best insight that anyone's going to on Luke Fickle and where he stands. The story went online last Friday. It ran in print on Sunday. Is that correct? I'm not even sure if it ran in print. That's uh, how, how crazy my life has become. Okay. Well, it is online somewhere, and we, we live in an online world, so you can go find it uh, on the LA Times website. Awesome story. But we are not going to stop here. We're going to talk more about this coaching search with Brady. Luke's obviously the, the name that is the most obvious because of the bone connection. But the other names that you just hear when – on, they're on everybody's list. Whenever you talk about it, they come up. The day Clay Helton was fired, these names came up. I think James Franklin at Penn State and Matt Campbell at Iowa State are probably those next two names that are just on every list. Let's start with Franklin, Brady, because you wrote a column a couple weeks ago about him and your thoughts on how he fits into the USC coaching search. What's your overall take on Franklin at this point as a candidate? You know, it's uh, my takes on these guys are – are fluid, you know, which is, which is funny. You know, I think one way about them one day and then I hear some little idea from somebody about them the next day. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, maybe I wasn't thinking that through or, um, which is a a way of plugging it pretty soon. I think early this week, I'm going to update my, uh, we're, we're putting out this, uh, you know, heat check as we're calling it, put out my, my next version. And, you know, Franklin, I still feel like is, um, I'm going to keep him warm. You know, I think my column was off of the, their win against Auburn and, and just watching the way that, you know, that whiteout atmosphere and, and the way that how special that is. And Penn state is a special job. And, um, he already has one of those top 10 to 15, uh, you know, I hesitate to say Penn state's a top 10 job, but certainly a top 15 job. He already has one of those gigs, you know, and one of those gigs coaches dream of getting, you know, and so I was kind of just pointing out that Franklin, you know, the candidates that legitimately, you know, candidates that they could get, I think that he's the one who has the most to lose. You know, you, you already have it rolling there. You know, you're, you're definitely in that top 10, you know, discussion most years, you know, he could get into the playoff at Penn state. Maybe this is the year he does it. 
he's from Pennsylvania originally. You know, I don't think it's like a Luke Fickle, Ohio thing. I don't think Franklin is, is necessarily romantic inside about Pennsylvania and Penn State, um, like Fickle and his family are about Ohio. But but he, but the main point was just that he he would be giving up a lot. He'd be risking a lot to come to USC and put yourself in a new pressure cooker, where you know if you don't do well within three or four years, you may be, you know, looking for the, you're looking for your next job. When he already has it kind of going, and, and he's got the number, at least at this moment, and you know, for the moment I wrote the column, the number one recruiting class in the country by some measures anyway, coming in for next year. Um, when you're recruiting at that level, you're already at a top 15 program. You know, would, would he really leave? Well, I think he could. I really think it's legitimate that he could. You just he would. We have to factor in he would be giving up a lot and risking uh, a lot. To leave to leave Happy Valley at this point when he's got it going like he does, maybe he wants to get out from under Ohio State. You know that you know you got to beat Ohio State every year in that division. You got to you got to beat Michigan in Ann Arbor. Well, I guess he did it last year in the pandemic disaster year for both teams. But you know he struggled with Michigan too, and it's a it's a tougher sled in Happy Valley than it would be at USC. And he. The question, again, is about ambition. How much ambition does James Franklin have? I think he's got a lot of ambition, and I'm not. There, There is a rumble that he and his wife aren't necessarily just in love with with living in the middle of nowhere and, and State College. Yeah, and I mean, this is, we're going way back now, and I've probably mentioned this before, but it's an interesting anecdote nonetheless. When I was in school at the University of Maryland and working for the student paper and covering the football team, James Franklin was the wide receivers coach, and he was my favorite coach on staff to talk to. I, I would request him every week. Was he, he just he was so charismatic and engaging, and I could tell just from those encounters why he was a good recruiter, and I could tell from those encounters that he was probably uh, on a track to, to bigger and better things pretty quickly, and that's how it played out. He was named the coach in waiting at Maryland, and that never came to fruition as he left and he took over at Vanderbilt and did things at Vandy that, that no one's really done. Obviously, there were some uh, other issues that happened there that will always get brought up. But uh, he goes to Penn State and has been you know pretty damn consistent there. Maybe he hasn't gotten fully over the hump, and uh, may, maybe he's maxed out there. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously off to an incredible start this year, but is he going to beat Ohio State? Is he going to – is he going to get past you know the other teams on that schedule, or is it going to be a, a typical Penn State season that kind of settles back toward the mean by the end? And maybe he does feel like I'm tapped out here, even with the recruiting uh, momentum going. I, I could totally see him as a guy who would fit in Los Angeles in a heartbeat. I think he, he would fit in from day one. I think he would be a dynamic recruiter. And I kind of think that he's maybe the, the best – feasible option that they could get. That's the way I kind of look at him at this point. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. He checks a lot of boxes. You know, the, the, the question there is I haven't delved deeply into the reference you made there to the incidents with some of his players. And I believe I, I again, I have not researched this enough yet, but, but sexual assault type issues. Right. Um, and the way of the handling of those things, I wonder, you know, is that going to, how will that play at USC given everything that's happened uh, at, at USC in the last few years? So that, uh, you know, that, that, there's, the, there's the rub 
potentially with with Franklin, and only a few people know whether that's whether that's potentially a factor or not. Yeah, I'm also not well versed on it. I did some some very cursory reading when we were putting together our first coaching hot board after the Helton firing, and I mean. I, I wouldn't be comfortable speaking to the details of it just because I, I don't think I've read enough, but it seemed like he defended himself against any allegations about his own handling and, and came out unscathed from it and certainly didn't affect his Penn State uh, employee. And it's now very far in the distance. I don't know how much of a factor it would be, but just in terms of talking about him as a coach and recruiter, uh, I think he's he definitely has to be very high on the list, if not near the very top. But let's move on to Matt Campbell, who is my favorite candidate. I just don't have any read whatsoever of his interest level, of if he if he wants to leave the Midwest. You're talking about a guy who's been in the Midwest almost his whole life. Uh, obviously, got his coaching start at Toledo as a head coach and has been at Iowa State now for a while and just worked miracles there. Brady, you and I were both in Big 12 country. You were covering – the mighty Kansas Jayhawks, who at that time were mighty and, and now aren't, but pretty much where Kansas is now as the least relevant Power 5 team is kind of what Iowa State was for a while, where you just didn't see any path to them ever being competitive. It just seemed hopeless. You're in a state with no in-state recruiting terrain, and even if there is, you're the second-tier uh, you know, FBS school in that state behind Iowa. So you're sharing a barren recruiting landscape with a more established program you're playing in a cold weather area uh, a program without much tradition i honestly do not know how matt campbell has done what he's done and for fans that just look at the records and, and we have this on our message board where fans will go i don't see the the appeal of campbell i mean eight wins nine wins that's not what we need at usc it's all relative like what he did in that turnaround is the most impressive turnaround in college football, maybe since Mark Mangino at Kansas? I don't know. If they can get Matt Campbell, to me, he's the best candidate. But do you have any read on him and if he's even a viable candidate to be uprooted from the Midwest and to come out to California? Those, those are all really great points about Campbell. And, uh, you know, he was definitely remains among my favorites as well um, for, for any big job that opens. You know, the the question is, yeah, USC, what's what's the relationship there? How does that appeal to him? And, and we don't we don't know those answers. But to, it's an interesting thing you brought up there. I mean, I would say what he's done at Iowa State is probably the best rebuild job of a of a program in shambles since Bill Snyder yeah. at Kansas State. Off the top of my head anyway. I mean, that's the type of you know, he hasn't gotten um to uh, well, he got into a New Year's Six game, you know. I mean, they, they haven't won the Big 12 um, yet, but um, they're not out of it yet this year. Oh, they only have one loss in the conference. You know, yeah, what he's done is remarkable, and it's it's a more impressive job than um, than I would say Fickle. I mean, I think Fickle's done an you know, awesome job at Cincinnati, but, but what Campbell's done in the Big 12 at Iowa State, that, that is the best. He's the most proven rebuilder that's for dang sure um out of, out of this bunch of coaches i mean obviously what franklin did it mandy was was impressive too but but this is um this is next level stuff and yeah i i don't have any feel for for his interest 
I, I know the buy, the buyout is reasonable, you know, for him because when he re-upped, you know, he had more leverage, and so that's that's down to a reasonable level. And yeah, I you know I I'm fascinated by the guy. I want to know more about him. Um, but it's been just crickets out there. The the polite you know Iowa media <laughs> hasn't even made him give a you know a, a denial or non-denial about USC. Hasn't even. There is zero sense of of where he's at. Maybe maybe that's my job. Try to go find that out. But but yeah, it's um, I like him a lot, and uh, I, I have no reason to think he wouldn't absolutely win big at USC. Man, Ace, I think it would be serendipitous for you to be sent back to Ames, Iowa for a story. That was one of our favorite road trips when we were in Kansas City. You were covering Kansas. I went with you on two of the Kansas basketball trips to Ames, Iowa. We had a great time there. Uh, lovely town. I don't know at all know how he recruits uh, football players to come there because it was always about five degrees every time we were there. But, yeah, maybe you should go back to your roots and get back to Ames and give us the, the scoop. It, it's definitely uh, definitely on the table. Got to gotta pick my spots uh, with the uh, pandemic travel. Uh, but, 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 yeah, definitely uh, – it would be fun, but I wouldn't go without you. So, that, you know, we'd have to have to tag team it. I, I wouldn't miss that one. Yeah, that, for sure. It would bring back some very fond memories. Those are a few of the names that you always hear about. But certainly, we have no idea what Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna's list looks like. They could have 40 names right now. Uh, all I was told going into this was that everybody was a candidate. Everyone was going to get looked at. They had no working list. When they fired Clay Helton, there was no favorite. There was no uh, tears. They wanted to go in totally open-minded and vet every you know, legitimate candidate that came across. And that's people who, whose agents reach out on their behalf and say, hey, my guy's interested. And that's also just doing your own research and saying who would be a fit, who's done the kind of things that we need to do, and building a list. And they gave themselves the, the benefit of two and a half months to do this. Uh, that's assuming that they're able to make a hire in early December, which would be ideal because then you can rally before the early signing period. But it's possible it goes beyond that. But they've given themselves all this time to work through all these candidates. And I, I do truly believe it was wide open going in. And it's probably still wide open because all they can do right now with coaches and existing jobs is back channel with the agents. And that's, that's what happens in these situa- situations. The agents reach out and go, yeah, my guy's interested, or no, he's not, or, well, he might be, but it would take this. And you just get some preliminary feel of where things are at, and then once the season ends, you know who you want to interview. But anyways, I'm not asking you to tell us what Mike Bone is doing. I want to ask you, if you were Mike Bone, what would you do? What would be your approach to this coaching search? Are there names that that aren't being mentioned that you would seek out and target? How would you go about this? Well, I mean, the, honestly, the the way you laid it out there sounds pretty good to me. I think you got to keep an open mind. I mean, I wonder, though, they, you know, Bone and Sosna have had two years, basically, to, to lead up to this moment. You know, they, they've True. known deep down at some point they were going to fire Clay Helton. So uh, I tend to think that they may actually have much more of an idea of who they're after and who they think they can get than that maybe they would let on. They're going to present the look of a national search, you know, because that's what they said they'd do. But I'm not necessarily sure that 
they don't already have a pretty good feel for, for who the main target or targets are. Um, given that, yeah, I think, I mean, just like how they described or, uh, you know, it was, it kind of came out and, um, the week after Helton, uh, you know, that basically they, um, basically this was almost like before the Stanford game was even over. Like they, they knew that, that there were certain benchmarks and, yeah. and they were ready to, to move. And that kind of tells me that they've also had a lot of time to think about who would be that next guy. I mean, that's the number one thing Mike Bowen's got to do right. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I think they want to, I'm sure you agree. They're, they're the kind of guys, I think they're going to want to keep this real nice and clean. They're not going to want it to be something where, you know, there's a bunch of rumors and stuff getting out and around and, you know, the search gets muddied. I don't think they want that. They've got the time to do this right and execute it, um, you know, the way that it should be executed. Um, but I think, like, there's certain people, why not put out a put out a quiet feeler? I guess there's always a risk that some agent or whoever leaks to – you know, a national reporter or whoever that, that there's some interest just to get their guy a raise or, or whatever. But the name that jumps to mind for me this week, I was just thinking, Hey, what, why not, why not look at Lincoln Riley? Why not, why not plug him, you know, and see, see if you can see if you can get some interest there, you know, just things that people like that, that, that sure they're already in a really good job, but you know, you never, you never know. And he's young and maybe he's feeling a little stale, you know, Oklahoma isn't operating like a juggernaut right now. And, you know, so that's just an example. They, yeah, keep an open mind and, and be smart about how you reach out. And uh, not that I know anything about running a coaching search, but yeah, I, I think um, you got to swing, you got to swing big here. You know, they, they got to get this one. This is it. And, you know, Bone's going to be defined by this decision. So he, he's got to make sure that he, he really did get a feel for who's interested. I think you're right. I, I don't think they went into this thing with a total blank slate. Surely they had the you know names in their head of where they wanted to start, but I also don't think they're closed off to anything. And that I think you have to always be open to surprises along the way. That oh my, hey, guess who reached out to us today? The agent for so and so. He's interested, and and you just you have to be not too attached to anything to truly vet everything. Lincoln Riley's interesting, and and what do we know about? Bone and Sosna that we can apply to this. Well, after the 2019 season, they aggressively pursued Dave Aranda for the defensive coordinator job when he was already the highest paid coordinator in college football and coming off a national championship. So that certainly, you know, implies that they weren't intimidated to take a shot. And, you know, as as all the reports and, and intel we got were that they were very close to having that done deal with Aranda before Baylor comes in and offers him the head coaching job. So I think they will be aggressive and they will take shots with guys like Lincoln Riley. That's a really interesting name. I mean, he's recruiting the hell out of Southern California right now. He's beating USC left and right for top recruits. That is a very interesting name. I think you have to make that call. Um, you mentioned your what was it your, your your heat index or your your heat factor list. What's it called? Heat check. Heat check. Heat check. Very catchy. Very catchy. Well done. So uh, give us a sneak peek on on who has maybe moved the most this week in your heat check. Well, you know, after I get off this call, I'm actually planning on, on messing with that a little bit. But, um, 
Yeah, I, I'm not totally sure there's going to be a ton of movement because, you know, as you said, <laughs> what, what, what movement is there? It's I mean, all conjecture. I, I tell you this, I'll, I'm going to move Urban Meyer off the list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I started with him off the list, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, that was smart on your part. But, uh, you know, I, I'm doing that as more of a, a buzz index. Um you know, versus since there is no real info out there, well, okay, what are people talking about? Right or wrong, certainly people talked about Urban Meyer, and he had to answer the USC question, unlike our friend Matt Campbell and those sweet people up in Iowa where you know, can't, can't, get, can't get one snippet of, oh, how would he react to the, even the question of USC in public? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think uh, – we will have a, a move downward even further and probably maybe off the list for PJ Fleck. Um, I think we'll, uh, we'll see some positive movement. Uh, but I think I already have half Jeff Halfley at Boston college, uh, right where he should be in the, in the medium range. I think he's a, he and he and Bill O'Brien are the type of guys I think are, you know, not necessarily, I would say that there's any reason to think they're warm. Um, but, but I think they're gettable and they're, they're right there in the middle and, and they'd be, I think they could both, you know, be good hires. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned it a little bit ago. Let me just reiterate, and I'm going to do it every time we talk about the coaching search is that I do expect that bone and Sosna are going to keep this very in-house and close to the vest. I don't even know who else would be in the circle of information beyond the two of them, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I guess that's, that's borrowing the Clay Helton line. Uh, I always get called out whenever I say, to be honest with you. But we saw the way they handled the Helton news, and how rare is it that a coach is fired through a press release and it doesn't leak out beforehand and the team is told in advance. And that was a great source of pride for Mike Bone is that, that no one else knew and that they, they controlled the message. That's going to be their intent here. I mean, I, I'm just telling you, no one in the local media or – I, I doubt even the national media is going to be getting any intel from inside USC. So you're going to see reports, and they're going to probably be sourced from agents. And you have to always vet that in terms of um, motivation. And is it is it true information or is it posturing? So it's going to be a wild two months, and just you know, strap in and be prepared to not know a whole lot. And that's going to go for all of us. Well, Brady, one last question. As you look at this, and and you you have a full scope of names in your head, in your in your heat check, and uh, on all of our hot boards, what do you think is the floor for this hire? A lot of fans on our message board are just they have ingrained doubt from previous coaching searches. They just expecting this to go poorly. I'm trying to counter that because I'm saying, well, they have an actual athletic director now and not a former player moonlighting in the role, so maybe it will be different. But what do you think is the floor, the worst outcome for this coaching search? Oh, well, Jack Del Rio, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, that's that's a joke. It's just playing to uh, your, your audience's fears. Um, you know them well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that uh, those two names I mentioned that, are, that I think are sitting there in the middle with kind of a, you know, they're not like the – the hot name or probably won't be for a long time and maybe not ever, but I would say like, yeah, like Bill O'Brien. I mean, the best thing that could happen for USC is that there isn't another really high quality opening. You know, this, they, they need to, they need to root for Ed Orgeron. 
You know, they need a Coach O to, to get this right and, and not get fired this offseason. Because if LSU comes open, you got a big-time comp competitor there for, for some of these names. You know, Bill O'Brien, to me, if, if nothing else jumps like an LSU, uh, you know, or something in that top 10 type program level, um, I don't see how they don't they couldn't get Bill O'Brien, and I and I don't see, you know, why that wouldn't be, you know, there would there would be reason to be excited about that hire if you're USC, you know, given his track record and experience. So yeah, I don't I don't I think they're gonna end up with with someone who they can feel excited about. All right, we'll see what happens. We'll check your heat index next week and see where things are going. Heat check, heat check. I'll get it down. I'll get it. I'm a quick learner, trust me. Uh, but hey, Ace, that was great stuff. Appreciate it. Of course, man. All right, all right. Great, great, great segment there from Brady McCullough from the Los Angeles Times. And because we had such a good time talking with Brady, we we're going to stick with the LA Times theme and bring on Ryan Karchi, the equally esteemed. USC beat writer for the Los Angeles Times. Ryan, how's it going? Doing great, Ryan. I, I appreciate you thinking I'm equally esteemed to Brady. I, uh, I'm i honored. I throw the esteem word around a lot. I'll just throw it out there for you. But nonetheless, much respect. Much respect. We were both in Boulder, Colorado this weekend. In fact, we went out and got dinner after the game. Nice town. Just for the fans who haven't been there, I would say that Boulder is the best road trip on the Pac-12 schedule. What say you? Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that, especially if if we're talking just you know strictly college towns. I mean, you know, I I love Seattle uh, as much as the next person, but you know, Boulder just has that kind of different feel. The entire city is is based around the college, and you can sense that when you're there. And that's just a, a different vibe altogether. And you know, it was, it was great to be back. It was. I ended up staying a couple of days extra. went up to Breckenridge in the mountains, and we are recording this podcast right after I get off the flight, and my ears have popped. So if I'm yelling into the into the podcast here, I apologize to the listeners, but I can't hear anything. But you know what? We're going to persevere and truck on and try and go 1-0 on this podcast. I have, a, I have generally terrible hearing in the first place, so I, I think this next segment may just be us yelling back and forth at each other. What? Good stuff. Well, we're bringing you on to break down the notable takeaways from USC's 37-14 win at Colorado. I think we were both of the same mindset in the press box that there's only so much you can read into that game um, and kind of extrapolate moving forward. Colorado is probably the worst team in the Pac-12 Definitely the worst offensive team in the Pac-12. So it was, as I put it, a get-right game for for really the offense, the defense, everybody. Coming out of that, though, is there one encouraging sign that you think is sustainable moving forward, the the one thing you can latch onto and say, hey, this could actually be a foundation to build upon for this team? I'll actually give you two things. Um, One of that, you know, the first of that being just the run game in general. I I think – you know, and I'm he- I'm hesitant to to say that you know Graham Harrell has figured out how to use the run game better, but it, it certainly felt that way against Colorado, and not even just in the sense that you know Keontae Ingram averaged nine yards per carry, but it just seemed like the the offense had a plan 
Um, and, you know, a lot of that might have to do with the way Colorado just tried to play man coverage on, on Drake London, and then they had to, you know, drop as many defensive backs as possible later on to, to you know, uh, to combat his early success. But, you know, I just think, and it felt like Graham Harrell had the right balance for the first time, and, God, I, I don't even know if there was a game last year in which it felt like they had the appropriate balance like that. Now, again, you have to caveat it with the fact that this is Colorado, but just in terms of the way he called the game, uh, I think that's encouraging. And the other aspect being that I think we're going to hear a lot about Michael Trigg over the course of the rest of this season, and you know, he showed pretty clearly in that game that you know, he, he may be the second most talented pass catcher in USC's offense, and it seems that they finally finally started to, you know, call plays for him, uh, really get him more involved, and I think that role is only going to grow over the course of the season. And just the fact that you have another person in that passing attack outside of Drake London, uh, I think that's just going to make a world of difference in terms of you know, giving Keaton Slovis some options. Two great points, and two guys that I think we saw in spring with Keontae Ingram and fall camp with Ingram and Trigg that we thought would have this kind of impact and it just maybe took a little bit longer than we expected with Ingram I think it's notable that pretty much since Dante Williams has taken over he's scrapped the 1A 1B plan that was just a talking point since January for this coaching staff and I totally respect it I think that in the past and bleeding over to this year they've tried just so hard to adhere to ideas that sound good like you know okay we're going away from the committee where it's gonna be 1a 1b it's gonna be equal carries 1a 1b as opposed to just saying let's see what's working the best and go with that and I think Keontae Ingram was the most impressive back that I saw in the spring in fall camp and it's no coincidence now that Dante comes in and he's not beholden to any of those previous uh, methodologies and he says Keontae's getting the ball. He's our guy. And then you, then you see Darwin Barlow come in and get his chance and equal Vi Malapai's carries, which is interesting. So Vi is now a 2A, 2B guy instead of a 1A, 1B guy. I, I think it's a pure reflection on Dante Williams, and I do believe in the run game because we saw Keontae Ingram flash and excel in the preseason, and it matched what I saw Saturday. So I buy you on that. With Trigg, I mean – he was one of the, the guys who just popped in camp. There was one day where he was the best player on the field. So nothing surprised me yesterday. It's just been a surprise that it's taken this long to get him integrated into the offense. And the fact that he came out and started the first series was targeted early and often. We still don't know what happened with him not playing in the second half. Dante Williams has said he's healthy. It wasn't disciplinary. It wasn't health. We just don't know why he wasn't a factor there. But we saw a lot of him, and I do think that he very well could be the number two option the rest of the way. Trigg makes a Drake London-like impression on his 46-yard touchdown catch where he's just too much of a physical mismatch with a defensive back or whoever was covering him to even compete. And he just goes up, gets the ball, uh, keeps his balance, and then shows the speed to get into the end zone. So if you have a Drake London-Michael Trigg, a 1-2 combo in the passing game, I think that could really open things up. The thing that I... I'm going to kind of build off that and say the thing that I think is sustainable is the passing game overall. I've obviously been more high on Keaton Slovis than most people. I didn't really ever get to kind of the the valleys that some got with him earlier this season. I thought he was 
good Saturday. I think he's been the same quarterback really this whole time for the last few years. It's just that he doesn't have the same weapons now. And in this game, uh, he had a few more guys making plays, and he capitalized. So I think the passing game overall could be productive the rest of the way. Yeah, and I agree with you, too. And it sets up really an interesting you know, conversation when Jackson Dart comes back. I mean, if Keaton Slovis is able to, you know, especially this, if you assume maybe Dart comes back after the bye week, you know, that leaves just more game for, for Keaton Slovis to establish himself, you know, this upcoming week against Utah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think what I've learned about Keaton Slovis, I feel like, is that, you know, he may not necessarily be the guy we thought he would be initially uh, in the sense that he could transcend all of the other issues around him. Sure. And I think we saw it this past week that, you know, when he is operating within a good plan and he has a run game to help him and, you know, potentially a defense is playing Drake London in a just inane way that I don't, I'm not sure defenses will play him the rest of the season. Uh, then he, you know, if he's set up for success, then, you know, he can grasp that, that level of success. And, you know, I, I can't exactly tell you why he didn't develop or progress as much as we thought he would from his freshman season, but I think it has a lot to do with the situations that he was put in. The fact that he did have a lot more weapons, a lot more diverse options to surround him, uh, and a better offensive line, you know, I, I think those factors do certainly make a difference. But that said, you know, I, I kind of fall in the same camp as you. I, I, I think he's capable of leading this offense, but, I, you know, I am very curious to see what the coaches do with Jackson Dart. Do they just automatically assume that, you know, he is still the guy that maybe they thought after that, that game at Washington State? I mean, it's not as if Washington State's that good. So it's uh, it's – certainly a decision I don't envy having to make when it comes to the coaches. Yeah, I think that Keaton Slovis would have to provide a real opening for any change to happen. And so, there, like you said, there's one more game before the bye week. If he goes out and plays solidly against Utah, I don't think there's any discussion. I think that the injury, the dart, gives them plenty of cover to play it safe and, and be cautious and you know protect the future of the position and not feel like they have to rush him in. Now, if Keaton Slovis does come out there against Utah and and struggles and throws a few picks and it kind of falls apart, then all bets are on the table and they have two weeks to sort it out. And I'm sure we'll get no intel from Dante Williams about it throughout that process. But uh, I think it's all in Keaton's hands. If he goes out and replicates this performance and is just efficient and and makes some of those big strike plays against Utah, I think that it'll be status quo the rest of the way. And we'll see. But, you know, going back to him and just his, you know, progression or lack of progression over the years, I think that we all, but fans especially, were always at risk of um, taking for granted that receiving core they had for in place for a few years. I mean, you're, you're talking about in 2019, they have Michael Pittman, a Blitnikoff finalist, Drake London, who should be one this year, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Tyler Vaughns. That's what Keaton Slovis started with. And even last year, you, you take, take Pittman out, and he has the other three guys. And there just isn't that depth of targets, and it makes a difference. It does. It just He has not had as many open guys to go to. And I'm not saying that, that maybe Jackson Dart doesn't have more upside and can't make plays happen in ways that Keaton can't. 
But I'm just saying, I, I don't think that Keaton Slovis is a different quarterback than he was two years ago. I, I really don't. I just think he has less to work with, and he's ebbed and flowed uh, in that way. One last note on the offense, and I know you've heard me vent about this uh, in the press box and after. I just don't understand the usage of Taj Washington. So you might have heard us all hype Taj Washington up big time in fall camp because he was really impressive on the practice field. And there are things he does very well. He is just kind of elite in his footwork and his quick cuts and his ability to shake a defender and, and really get open right away. I think get open five yards downfield pretty much every, every snap if he wanted to and if the pass was on time. I thought they would use him in that way, a high volume of short targets where he gets open quick and then you, you hope that he breaks uh, one or two or three of them for you know, 20, 30 yards and, and you have a couple of those plays a game. Instead, they're sending him downfield on fade routes. They're, they're sending him you know tough, contested passes, and that's not his strength. That wasn't his strength in fall camp. Like We had a pretty clear profile on who Tosh Washington was, and I thought it could be very useful for this offense but they're choosing to use him in all the ways that are not his strengths and not use him much in the ways that are his strengths. I think we saw one play Saturday where they got him open really quickly under the defense and let him do his thing, but we haven't seen a lot of that. Am I off base here, or do you kind of agree with that sentiment? Well, I think we turned to each other after that specific play you just referenced, and we kind of gave each other a look like, why don't they do that all the time? Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they had some of those routes – for him like during the fall uh it's not as if this offense can't handle that kind of that kind of strategy i mean i I agree with you completely and i actually you know like you i i thought taj washington was going to emerge as the number two guy uh in the receiving court just because he was so quick and shifty and you know he provided something that the usc receivers didn't have um so i think it's that diversity that I feel like the the offense has been missing a little bit. Like you have Gary Bryant who can go deep. You have Drake London who's kind of a physical guy who can catch a ball over the middle or he can you know, catch an over-the-shoulder pass uh, along the sideline. Like he's versatile. And then you have now Michael Trigg who can also do that sort of thing in the seam. Like you need an under uh, underneath guy. It, it just seems like for the diversity of this offense, it would make a lot of sense to do that. And I know they've they've kind of you know they've kind of stuck with running backs in that role, kind of as an uh, the underneath option for the last two years. And I just don't understand why you don't use a, a quicker, even shiftier guy in that role. And you know, maybe we'll see more screens down the stretch, kind of like that, and and they'll get Taj in more space. But it all also kind of seems like Gary Bryant had surpassed him at least over the last couple of weeks, just in the way he's played. I think he has three touchdowns in the last three weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, there's always a chance that, you know, Taj kind of fades from this offense, especially with, with Trigg breaking out. But I think there's a way to use all of these guys in concert. And I think it would only help the passing offense. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that Gary Bryant is a better receiver than Taj Washington. and can do a lot more and probably should if, if there's going to be a, a split there, should have more of it. But I just want to see when they do use Tosh Washington, use him correctly. Okay, on the defensive side, this is where I really think it's perilous to read too much into this performance. Obviously very encouraging. They allowed two touchdowns. One came off of an offensive turnover. But we saw this defense kind of do the same thing against Washington State and now against Colorado. And then 
the opposite against Oregon State. And I continue to think that the personnel just isn't there to be consistently consistent, for lack of a better word. And so I, I'm, I'm going to kind of take this game for what it was and not say, oh, the defense is fixed now, everything's great. Where do you come down on that? You know, I, I agree with you uh, for the most part. I do think one aspect that sort of stood out to me from the game that I think is more sustainable than others is just the pass rush. Uh, you know, Drake Jackson had been really close to having multi-sack games throughout the course of the season so far, and finally he kind of broke through on that end. And I think with him, you know, a lot of that is just sort of confidence. Like, I, I, I think him kind of putting it all together like he hasn't been the most consistent uh, pass rusher he's obviously you know so talented uh, but i i think there's a chance that a game like that in which he gets two sacks and me honestly three if you count you know one play in which colorado's quarterback just sort of fell under the line of scrimmage but then he also recovers the fumble and nearly had a pick six too <laughs> so it was a truly dominant performance and it, i think he really feeds off of off of that sort of thing he's that type of player and you know it wasn't just him and i thought you know one of the more encouraging players on that defense was was jake lichtenstein um you know someone who didn't necessarily wasn't you know an obvious choice to be a major contributor at the start of the season but has really emerged you know on the interior of that line and you know had two sacks against colorado has really been impressing coaches ever since fall camp and you know if they're able to have two guys who can pretty consistently rush the passer and you know, if they're able to kick Thule, Thule Peloto out a little bit to the outside, maybe give him more of a chance to rush the passer, passer then you know, you're talking about a lot more effective pass rush. And you know, when it comes to Todd Orlando's defense, the blitzes and just you know getting pressure on the quarterback is just so crucial and it's really where everything else builds from so you know if there's an optimistic view on this on this defense after the game you know i would say it's the pass rush but you know that said there are still a lot of questions about the secondary i'm not convinced at all by the linebacking core and i think when you talk about just the personnel being a problem I i think it's certainly a problem at linebackers so I wonder if before too long we may see someone like Arajan Davis a lot more, um, potentially even you know being a starter at some point this season because at this point they just need talent at, at you know the linebacker level and just in the defensive backfield. Man, it's like you're pulling these thoughts straight from my head and uh, throwing them back at me. Um, just to, to go over a few of those, I, I thought it was notable that we saw Tuli Tupelotu more on the edge on the outside. And I asked Dante Williams about that Sunday night, if that was a product of Jake Lichtenstein's uh, emergence and being able to take a, a bigger workload at the tackle spot. And he said, no, you know, every game we evaluate what's the best for that game plan. But we've, we've learned by this point that Dante is pretty uh, coy, evasive, whatever you want to say. So, <laughs> so I am going to read into it and think that Lichtenstein's emergence is now allowing them to put Thule back to where he excelled last year. And I think that's probably the best for the defense overall. With Drake Jackson, yes. I mean, we've seen him have these games before. It's not like it was any kind of surprise that he can come out and have two sacks and a pass breakup and a fumble recovery. He's done that before. Can he build on that going forward? And I want to throw this back to you because you had a great story on Drake last week and kind of about what he's gone through 
the season and some of the stuff off the field that's been kind of weighing on his mind. If you can just kind of take the re- the listeners into that story and what you learned about Drake Jackson last week. Yeah, so Drake made pretty clear at the beginning of the season that this was going to be his last season. He he had a you know classic quote uh, saying it was his money year, and you know I, I asked him a little bit more about that and just the fact that you know he hadn't had a sack uh, for a while until that Washington State game. He had the one uh, that led to the touchdown. Um, and, you know, he still, he wasn't satisfied. And I, I thought, you know, it sort of seemed like there was something different about Drake just in talking to him one-on-one this year than in the past. And and we proceeded to talk about his grandmother, um, who actually died this past spring. She was tragically hit by a train, which is awful, obviously. Uh, and it was a huge shock to the family. And she was kind of Drake's, you know, biggest fan in terms of football. And, you know, I know his, his dad had told me that, you know, he had plans to help her out with his first contract and sort of pay her back for everything she did for him. And I I think that's kind of weighed heavily on Drake over the course of these last six months or so since she died. And, you know, I, I think part of him kind of takes on that responsibility that, you know, he needs to make it to the NFL and kind of live up to the potential that he has, maybe more so than he did in the past. And I know his dad said he kind of saw like a different hunger in him heading into this season. And, you know, I I think we saw that very clearly on Saturday. It was pretty, pretty fortunate timing for this story for sure. Um, But, you know, when he's at the kind of the height of his powers, uh, you know, he's a potential top 10 NFL draft pick. Uh, he's a potential future star in the league. And, you know, it's really just a matter of putting it all together. And, you know, I, I'm inclined to believe that he's capable of doing that. Uh, and I know his, you know, there's been questions about his role and did he lose too much weight uh, when, you know, over the course of the fall. Um, and, you know, it really seems like all of those issues kind of went away or at least briefly went away this past week. Um, or, and, you know, wh- whether that portends success in the future for Drake, I don't know. But, you know, as we've talked about, like when he's, you know, at his best, this defense is just kind of at a different level. So he'll uh, he'll certainly be a huge, huge question going forward if he can keep that up. Yeah, it's, it's great perspective. And I, I'm pretty sure that, after the game, we saw him wearing a T-shirt with his grandmother's photo on the shirt, if I saw it correctly. But definitely good perspective to understand what's driving him, what's weighing on him. And, um, you know, everyone knows these guys as, as players and, and jersey numbers and and stat producers, but they're people too, and that influences a lot of stuff. And, you know, on that note, we can mention that Dante Williams revealed on Trojans Live Monday night that his father had passed away. Last week, uh, I had done a story on the family entering his first game in the Coliseum, and his mother told me that you know that had been very tough for him, and that he had gone to the hospital and seen his dad on a ventilator, and they they were getting calls, you know, several times from the hospital saying you might want to come down tonight could be the night, and uh, just a lot for him to take on as he's thrust upon him this responsibility of being a head coach out of the blue a few weeks ago. He's also dealing with. Uh, knowing that his father is is nearing his end and and then passed away last week, very tough for him. And but let's just close with this, Ryan. Uh, 
based on everything we've seen, it's been a kind of a, a yo-yo the last few weeks is, is the term I use in my column. You know, just uh, it's been a string of blowout games one way or the other. The Stanford game, obviously blowout loss, blowout win at Washington State, blowout loss to Oregon State, blowout win Colorado. At this point, taking stock, what track do you think this team is on? Is there a win total you have in mind that you think is kind of what this team is showing at this point? You know, it, it's so easy to be clouded by the recency bias of a game like Saturday when they simply do what they're supposed to do. Um, because, you know, through the first month of the season before that, they, they hadn't really done what they were supposed to do. I mean, even in the San Jose State game, there were questions uh, about how it, how it all played out. But, you know, I, I do think ultimately this team, you know, I, I believe they'll probably be a bowl team. Um, I don't know that, you know, I think before the season, we, we were talking more in the 8, 9, 10 range for games. I think it's probably more like the 6, 7 range now. Uh, it's tough because, you know, this first month was supposed to be the easy part. And it now that it, it wasn't, you're, you're staring down the next couple months of, you know, a Notre Dame, a BYU. BYU's now ranked in the top 10. So that might be the best team they play all season. UCLA's looked better. Uh, Arizona State uh, just beat UCLA and could be the favorite in the South. So uh, there's still so many difficult games ahead, especially given what we've seen from this team. And, you know, I'm not ready to say they'll miss a bowl game, but I, I think they're probably right around that range as of right now. But I reserve the right to change since they seem to become a different team every week. Yeah, exactly. And we're not even going to talk predictions for Utah because it's, it's impossible to predict this team. But I'm with you. I, I'm kind of in the 7-5 and five projection mode at this point for the season which is certainly a major change from I think I was on the more bullish side entering the year. I was I probably said 10-2, and two, if I recall correctly, although I don't want to recall saying that, but I probably did. But, yeah, I'm, I'm more in the 7-5 and five range now. But, you know, again, we'll learn more and more about this team every week, and I think the bye week will certainly help them. Uh, if they can somehow get a win against Utah this week and then they have the bye, maybe it's time to recalibrate and, and think a little more optimistically, but I just don't know what to expect week to week. And, It'll be interesting. Uh, always great to – actually, this is your first appearance on the Trojan Talk podcast. So uh, we are uh, grateful for you blessing us with your presence and your insight and your perspective. Thanks, man. I'm totally not offended that you haven't asked me uh, all these years. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm over it. I was saving it for just the right occasion, and this was it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you having me on anytime. All right. Very good, and we'll see you on the practice field. That is our podcast for this week. Thank you for listening, as always, to the Trojan Talk podcast. And much thanks to Brady McCullough and Ryan Karchi of the Los Angeles Times. If you are not subscribed to Trojansports.com, join in. We're having great discussions. We're dropping exclusive feature stories every week, including one coming up on Michael Trigg on Thursday. So get signed up, get in, join us, follow along through the rest of the coaching search and check back next week for probably a more traditional podcast with our familiar friend and resident analyst Max Brown back on the show most likely depending on schedules and uh, how things align but we should have Max back on the breakdown the USC Utah game and 
kind of the first half of the season heading into the bye week. So we will see you then, and thank you as always.